Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. From the Palmetto Swamps, to the Piney Woods, to the Oak Flats, you're listening to the Louisiana Bowhunter Podcast. You're listening to the Louisiana Bowhunter Podcast, presented by Scree Gear, Performance Apparel. Talk about them every week, and the new Guardian bib and jacket combo has been extremely popular. I've heard positive feedback from everyone around here that I talk to that's picked that up, and as well, talking to the guys at Scree, they've had a lot of positive feedback. I know deer hunters in general love bibs, and if we can ever get some cold weather... The bib and heavier jacket's going to be a nice thing. But I'll say, I've actually, another product that they came out with this season, and you hear Kyler and I talk about the Ptarmigan Goose Down jacket all the time. Well, they came up with a pant that goes with it, and it's a packable. It zips all the way up to, up to the hip, so it's kind of a, you pack it in and put it on like you would a pair of rain gear. And um, it's the same 850-gram Goose Down insulation. I've worn that several times on some cooler days both up in the midwest and and the few cool days we've had here and i've been very impressed with that but um it's been an incredible year for scree and i do want to let everybody know we're going to give away a louisiana bowhunter gear package at christmas time the way that you win that is if you've purchased any scree gear um send me a review or you can send it to louisiana bowhunter or you can send it to myself you can look me up lock wheeler on any any social media platform um all i ask is you give me your name your location and what gear you purchased positive or negative i just want to hear your reviews of the gear so we can share that with them and find out more about what's going on we'll randomly pick one of those reviews and we'll give away a louisiana gear package hat t-shirt and whatnot at christmas time so 
um, if you've purchased, get involved in that. And we've made it to December, Kyler, and um, it always feels like that happens really, really fast. Every year it seems to happen faster. It does. I uh, I am excited for the end of this month. I'm mainly excited for wet weather and to be able to start paddling in places more easily, not so forcefully and dragging, dragging bottom. Um, but uh, I am very excited for uh, the rut coming up and, and all that. So it does happen fast. I agree. Well, um, we're I, I'm actually doing this podcast a little bit different. I am actually on a location here with Mr. Dave Moreland, who is our guest. And um, typically this is all phone. Kyler's on the phone, and me and Mr. Dave are here recording um, together. So if you don't know who Mr. Dave is, he is retired from the Louisiana Department of Wildlife and Fisheries. And tell me exactly what your resume was. I know you were the deer study manager, but what all did you do for the department? Well, I began my career in 1976 as the game biologist for uh, what was called District 7, which was the Florida Parishes. And surprisingly, they had not had a game biologist in the district since sometime in the 60s. So uh, um, I had the world in front of me and was told, go out and get it and (laughs) and enjoy your job. And that's exactly what I did. And then I moved up to the district supervisor position, which um, like Pearl River Management Area, um, uh, Sandy Hollow, we eventually got that, those places. And then when the uh, deer study position became available in, in, I think, let's say, 92, I tried for that and got it and uh, figured I was going to finish my career uh, at that position. But then uh, for my last three years of state service, I was the uh, chief of wildlife for the wildlife division. So that's why I ended up. But um, um, I guess most of the my time was spent with deer management, even even at the district level, because not a whole lot of management work had been done uh, regarding white-tailed deer. And then um, in the in 1980, I got with LSU and and and, and Mr. John D. Newsom, who had worked for the department and who was in charge of the LSU Wildlife Co-op there, and uh, helped him. and And we um, developed the DMAP program which has become a um, mainstay for a lot of people. Well, I did not. That's one thing I didn't know. <laughs> yeah. So, um, Kyler, have you ever hunted on any properties that were doing DMAP? Well, yeah, uh, with Levi last yeah. year. But, um, and but then, you've uh, never been, like, part of the management of it, just hunted as a No, guest. no, yeah. no, no, uh, never. Well, well, DMAP's very, very popular, and I had no idea that you were part of the development of that plan. Yeah, we, we – did it initially on on Lottie Wildlife, and then here in this parish on Beach Grove Plantation. Oh, okay. We did it for a year just to see how it would go, and and um, you know, we thought very highly of it, and thought it was a way that a landowner, a club, could uh, try to achieve the desired harvest that that yeah. we that we were recommended that they do, and then also to help them with the habitat management type work and. And then in 1981, we went statewide with it, and it's it's done real well. Uh, we've seen a decline, I think, uh, once we went to a, a full season either sex. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people uh, dropped out and said, we don't need to do DMAP. But I, I, 
I tried to encourage all the clubs and, and landowners, you, you got to keep your data. You still got to do that if you want to know what's going on, if you're really trying to manage your herd. And, and that's what uh, that's what's going to tell you whether you're making progress or not is, is your harvest data. Yeah. So, Dave, um, I know where Lottie Wildlife is. It's in Area 6, and it's, I think, I'm pretty sure it borders Sherburn. It correct? does. It's just right north of Sherburn. That's right. Where's Where's the other property that you mentioned? I've never heard uh, of that. Right here north of Clinton in East Feliciana Parish, uh, the okay. Beach, Beach Grove Plantation, which was owned by Mr. John Barton. Still is owned well, by the Barton family, yeah. I, I had no idea that you were a part of the origination of that program. Can you tell me and our listeners a little bit about the um, – why it was brought uh, to fruition and, and, and introduced? Well, the uh, I, I, I sat with Mr. Newsom on several times there at LSU in his office, and we talked about wouldn't it be nice that if a club had the full season to harvest does rather than limit it to the doe days because on doe days it, it always seems to rain or it's 90 degrees and things like that. And, and so um, we thought that would be the best approach to achieve the desired harvest level. And, and so, like I said, we experimented with it there at Lottie and Beach Grove, and it worked real well. And then the next year we went statewide, and and people found it uh, as, a, as a way that they could harvest um, what we recommended. Y'all need to shoot, you know, 25 does or so. But we finally discovered that people were getting um, kind of cold feet after – after shooting maybe half the number we recommended, they started getting cold feet like that. But it also was a way to manage your your buck management to to reduce that uh, year and a half old buck harvest and focus more on the the older um, mature bucks if that was the goal of the program. Uh, and and now with the way the DMAT program works, they give you both uh, buck and doe tags, so um, it's it's uh, really regulated harvest. Our guests every week are brought to you by our friend Brian Chamberlain, the Chamberlain Lending Team with Movement Mortgage. And if you're in need of a residential loan, primary or secondary vacation investment, cash out, rate reduction, renovation for add-ons, any of these kind of needs, contact Brian. Nobody does better. Low credit scores, potentially 0% down, and the Movement Mortgage 42% of their profits go towards charitable organizations through the Movement Foundation, and that sets them apart. Brian is licensed in Texas, Louisiana, and Mississippi, NMLS number 114586, and Movement Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender, NMLS ID number 39179. So uh, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned the doe days because I'm officially old enough to have been a little boy old enough to hunt and kill deer back when there were doe days, but still a little fella learning to hunt, trying to kill my first deer. And, and or maybe uh, I think I actually killed my first deer ever on a doe day, and it was a buck, <laughs> but it was a small buck. Yeah, but um, antlerless buck. You're, 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 you're right that um, it was – I can remember a few different doe days as a, as a, as a kid, not a teenager, but a kid – when the weather was really good and my dad was really excited because we were going to get to get meat for sure because back then we would see 20 does a day, you know, and I was going to get the chance to shoot a deer and and we had really good weather and it was better than Christmas. And then I can also remember some doe days when it was like all the build up and it's raining and 70 degrees and the wind's blowing 15 miles an hour out of the south. And, uh, 
it was always a big deal. But and I also found it interesting that you mentioned that some of what y'all seen early on was people getting cold feet, and I think that 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 kind of uh, hit home with me a little bit because I I always kind of come at everything on the podcast from this perspective of the private land hunter and the manager because I don't really do much public land stuff, at least not at home anyway. And um, I found that, like, through the years, again, just kind of speaking of the timeline, I came up in that. When I was a teenager and, like, really getting after it and hunting all the time and all that kind of stuff was when the law started to change in Mississippi and Louisiana and, and started opening up does all the time. And and you also had this uh, uh, increase in culture where people were shoot does, shoot does, shoot does. Right. Well, that went on for a little while, and then people started going, well, we're shooting a lot of does, and now we're not seeing as many deer. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and so it was all, I always I, I remember those kind of things happening with people that I know in places I hunted and was involved with where it was like this tremendous rise in culture when it came to harvest, and then it started to fall off. People was like, well, hold on now. I used to see five or six deer hunt, and now I'm seeing one or two. And um, Yeah, that uh... – we saw that when when we started uh, DMAP, it was kind of a habitat boom. Uh, in the mid-70s, you started seeing in, across the state these large clear cuts. And, and the timber company would clear cut, but they wouldn't replant like they do now. They would just let it re- reforest naturally. And it was a boom for deer habitat. I mean... And and so we had a boom for deer, too. And, and, and so in the 80s, when DMAP started, it, it went well. Then as you got into the 90s, the mid-90s, and timber companies started doing a little more intensive management with their pine, uh, herbicide treatments uh, began to come around, and which uh, removed the hardwood competition from the pine. And so the ability of the forest to, to produce the, the, the nutrition that the deer herd needed declined. And uh, when anytime your nutrition declines, you're going to see – Generally, you're going to see declines in body weights, antler reproduction, things like that. And so you really need to uh, be on top of your harvest and, and, and monitor it and manage it uh, like that. I do feel like, and Kyler, I don't know if you've seen this in, in, in your time, but I feel like that what you just said is the factor that it all ran together and people didn't take it into account. They were killing a whole bunch yeah, of does right. and they weren't realizing that timber management and land management is changing at the same time. Exactly. And they just kept on and kept on and kept on until it was they were in that if you could put it on a graph, right. they got into another zone of the graph where it was like, okay, hold up, you need to be backing off because you're right. not producing as many deer a year with this habitat that you and, were. And, and we always – I. We always try to stress to people, just because you have tags in your pocket and can kill six does doesn't mean you need to. Yeah. You, you've got to look at your habitat and look at your herd and see, well, what do I need to harvest and things like that. And, and, but a lot of people say, well, you're giving us this many tags. We're going to try to use them. And, but that wasn't the way. That's not the way to manage deer. I do feel like. I'll say this, and then you go, Kyler. I, I've, I, and I think Kyler's going to agree with this statement. I do feel like our what we see through Louisiana Bowhunter, all the different people that we get to talk to and, and feedback, I think that culture's getting better. Yeah. Um, I see it. Uh, there's way more people that 
don't have the uh, urgency to fill every bag limit, every tag, and are more conscious about it. And what were you going to say, Kyler? Um, well, what I was going to say was this is all really interesting to me because um, I didn't have a childhood filled with hunting. Um, I didn't have uh, the ability to go hunting with dad, grandfather, and, and see camp culture and uh, you know, 80-year-old men in the 80s and, and what they thought about the woods and population, et cetera. I'm an adult onset, on, onset deer hunter. Um, I started hunting when I was, I started bow hunting when I was 24 and I'm 35. So, um, I, I haven't been bow hunting that long, but just like anything that I latch onto, I obsess and take it way too far. But, um, everything that Dave just mentioned, um, predates my even knowledge of bow hunting. Um, as far as like <clears throat> regulation change, um, habitat change, uh, mentality change, DMAP, et cetera, because since I've been bow hunting, things have been very stable. Um, and, and when I say stable, I mean, there hasn't been a lot of change. The only regulation change or even um, uh, holding people restriction, if you will, it, it has to do with a natural disaster, such as the flooding in Baton Rouge in 2016, um, something like that. So this is all very interesting to me. Um, not only that, but uh, Dave, I've never been in a hunting club before, um, and DMAP has, in my perspective, has always been something that happened over there. You know, like it was something I heard about, right, and I never right, really knew yeah. a ton about it. So, um, you, so I, I might ask you some silly questions because I'm still learning about this as well. I've I've all always walked into a DMAP situation. Like it's been standing for a long time on that property, such as Levi's place, right? They've got DMAP and it's just like, I'm sure they've had it for many years. How do you um, assign tags to a property? Is it based on a wildlife study or is it just based off acreage? How do you determine that? Well, it, it's, it should be based on the harvest data, the uh, age structure of the deer herd, your, your physical condition of the deer, the um, the reproduction that's going on, things like that, and and then you you get a you what what is your goal? What are you trying to do? Are you trying to grow some older deer with bigger antlers? You know, uh, first off, can your habitat do that? And so you have to have the harvest data, and, and that's that's the main thing with DMAP is you got the harvest data. You can use the harvest data to manage your deer herd, and that and that's the way it should be done. What one interesting thing today? Uh, what kind of Locke alluded to there? Uh, I'm, I'm seeing a lot of clubs, landowners that have gotten uh, into real intense buck management, and some places probably have bucks dying of old age rather than being <laughs> harvested. Because I see a mindset out there that everybody thinks that little buck is going to be wall hanger one day and that's just not the case when you start looking at the data you have uh and and you look at an age class say you're two and a half year old you have a group of bucks that are below average you have a group of bucks that are above av that are at average and then you have a, a, a group of bucks that are above average and so if you're trying to grow some quality or larger deer don't worry about the low, the below average, because they're not going to do it. They're just they're just 
behind and, and it's not a genetic deal it's just physically they're just not going to be, be the deer you want to be so the the, the group to, to work on to focus on is you pass up those good two and a half year olds that are above average and let them move up into the older age classes but I'm seeing hunters that they go out there and say well that's just a uh a little buck and he's going to get older he might be five and a half years old and that's the best he's going to do yeah i think that's the i think that's the hardest thing about this culture of qdma and everything is it's a hard thing to do even for people that are quote-unquote professionals at it and there's too many misconceptions about it and people are taking it to a very high level in the way that they try to implement it and they don't understand that I mean, it's just like if you take a family where you have two brothers and they both have children, and so you've got four, five, six cousins. Well, a couple of them are going to be really good athletes, and the other ones aren't, and they all have the same genetics. Right. We're not all the same, and the deer aren't all the same. And people, um, it's really hard to age deer. Right. Uh, even for people that do it for a living, it's hard to age deer. I saw a picture online today, and I, I I wasn't in the mood to get into a Facebook battle with anybody, so I didn't say anything. <laughs> but but the guy posted a trail cam picture, and it was a probably a three year old eight point. It was a nice little buck, right. and he said something. And look, I'm not a professional at it either, but I, I feel like I was right about this one, and I I've had enough exposure to it that I think I got a little bit of an idea of what I'm looking at. And he says. You know, in a couple of years, this deer's going to be a 160 or 170, and I'm thinking to myself, that deer, if that deer ever makes 140, you'll be lucky. Yeah. And, and, that, <laughs> you know? uh, and it was a nice deer. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with him. It's just not going to get that big. Across the board in this state, if you look at, if you look at the Boone and Crockett scores, probably a 130-class deer is a top-end deer on most habitats. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a study done in New York of, a few years ago where they – took the Boone and Crockett score of all the age classes of deer that was killed, you know, year and a half, two and a half, three and a half and older. (laughs) And there were more three and a half and older spikes killed than 160 or better class deer. That's the the one, a Boone and Crockett deer is really a, a, uh, anomaly it's, it's an a freak anomaly. it's a it, it's a professional athlete yeah, it, of the herd and and it's very rare you know less than one percent and if i've heard people say well i'm going to manage my land for boone and crockett deer i said well first off can you do it <laughs> what what type of what can you grow and then you do realize it's just you're gonna your deer harvest is gonna be very very low <laughs> yeah well i uh it's 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 interesting to me, and I, I'll say one thing, and I, I kind of cut you off just a second ago, Kyler, and I didn't mean to, but um, I have found, and, and Kyler, I don't know if you ever had this conversation with Levi. I'm going to use him as an example, but he's far from the only one of, of, of a number of people I know that have um, strict management programs on private property. One of the things that I've seen consistently with the ones who do end up growing and killing a lot of big deer Mm -hmm. and some of those deer they're killing are four years old some of them are six years old but they're just simply they're able to have a a healthy enough herd that some of those deer make it right almost every one of them understand and realize that there are three and four year old eight points that aren't going to get bigger they might gain five inches of horns in mass or some character point as they get older but he's a 127-inch eight-point at three years old, and yeah. he's not – the best he's going to be is a 135-inch yeah. nine-point at five years old, and they harvest those deer. 
they don't look yeah. at every rack buck with the potential of being like they they understand yeah. how to pick out body and antler characteristics through trail cam surveys to realize these deer actually have the potential to blow up and right. not every right. not every pretty rack buck does exactly you know well i got uh, a few weeks ago one of my customers has a um extremely a well-managed property in mississippi and he invited me to come hunt with him and the way that he got me was he said hey we his, his exact words were we need to take 150 does off the property come out and come shoot a doe or two or six whatever and um I, so I showed up and, and I totally expecting to shoot a doe. We're in the golf cart going to the stand or they're going to drop me off. And um, he goes, all right, you can shoot a four and a half year old eight point or under. You can shoot a spike that is at least one and a half that has under four inch spikes or you can shoot any doe. And I look at him and I was like, cool, I can shoot any doe. <laughs> like, I, I, said, yeah. I, said, I said, man, thank you. I'm not about to ruin my invitation back here by hoping a four and a half year old eight pointer under falls in that, what you're, what you're making the cutoff for your property. I was like, and, and guess what? I mean, I saw, I saw some hammers that night, some one forties, one fifties, 30, 40 yards. And it's amazing how calm you can be around a giant buck. When you're not going to shoot. Yeah. And, and so, you know, they were, they, now don't get me wrong. They have some, absolute giants on camera i'm talking 160 170 180 they shoot them every year i don't think they've ever taken a 200 off of it but i think they're trying to get there but they've got a lot of acres almost i think it's 3600 or something like that and they've got a lot of food and resources and so i i do i I really like what you said about the professional athlete is you can't manage your expectation for your deer based on the the pro quarterback that is the one percent of the one percent and then hold that standard to everything else that's unreasonable um and i i I think it's interesting that we've kind of gone to that mindset but i also don't know and this is my personal network i don't know a lot of people that are really striving for that but i know a ton of people that let that roll off their tongue like they're doing something and all they're really doing is just being a little selective. You know, um, I, I don't know anybody that's that's really like trying to change genetics and coal and all that stuff. Um, yeah, you, you're not really going to change your genetics from that. You know, a lot of people don't like to use the word cull, but um, I, I just simply say you're shooting the low-end deer that aren't going to become the type of deer that you want to – you know, your your three and a half and four and a half year olds that are just scoring one hundred, one ten, and they're not going to reach the higher level that you that you have anticipation for, and, and yeah. so and so much of it, like you alluded to um, on this track of land, if you can provide the nutrition, then you can grow quality deer. You know, the nutrition is, is the bottom line, and, and you've got to have, it. and it's got to be year round. Uh, mm-hmm. My 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 biggest problem and this has been mentioned in different conversations on this podcast my biggest problem personally with the cull is like it or not what what culling has become is a scapegoat yeah and 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 i don't necessarily mean that in an egregious dishonest way but it's also um it's our natural anxiety and excitement for being able to hunt 
we start I've seen it in deer camp environment too much both um the categorization of deer that that are inventoried and kept up with on their property and and not only that but also the the hunter that kills a deer and and then they realize well that's not quite what I had set my expectation to be and so it becomes a justification and mm-hmm. I, I just said like you said I say kill try to kill mature deer and let them get to a certain age at least before you kill them and understand that that you know it just kind of is what it is because like i said culling has it has become or at one point anyway it just became a scapegoat justification for everything that got shot that wasn't deemed a trophy in whoever's eyes and you know that that has negative ramifications in and of itself you know both both from a relationship standpoint amongst hunters and from overall management because now it's just an excuse for the one half who wants to kill more deer to have a a point of argument with the other half who wants to take less bucks you know whatever kind of thing so yeah um go ahead one of the one of the things i wanted to cover on that was um the the thing (sighs) I try not to care what other people do. <laughs> Key, keyword is try. Um, but it's always been a struggle for me, and, and this is because I think I, I'm, I'm actually the odd one here. I, as a human, I enjoy personal progression um, in, in life and in relationships and family and business and in hunting. And, um, and so for me, I kind of look at some deer as, uh, a bit like a, a check valve moving forwards. Like if I shoot a hundred inch eight point, I probably won't go under that ever again, you know, wh- regardless of age. Um, uh, now, unless he's like, unless he's like a nine year old toad, that's a six point that weighs, it's got, you know, 80 inch, uh, um, 80 inch rack on him or something, which I got one of those on camera on public land last year. That was just, like this deer had to be 300 pounds and he looked like he had fingers on top of his head. It was really odd. But, um, anyway, uh, I try not to regress back to like, uh, past accomplishments. And so the thing for calling for me is that if you're choosing to shoot whatever you would like or whatever you feel your trigger finger is itching for, um, then own it. And don't make an excuse about it. And don't try to convince yeah. people around you that it wasn't ever going to become something. That's always been the thing that was odd for me is because I, I kind of – my standards grow. And now my standards aren't really based on antler size as much as it is body size and, um, and, and age. Um, but now I look at a certain size deer and, and I'm like, well, that's only about a 140-pound buck. He's got a nice rack, but man, it looks like a West Texas deer. I'm going to let him go, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so that's the thing that's always been odd about culling quote unquote for me. And then, you know, David, you might, I'm sure you know more about this than I do, but there's been a lot of studies done, especially in Texas that have proven that it's not possible to control a deer herd the way that people think that it is. No, you're not, you're not going to change the genetic makeup, um, by harvesting certain deer it's such yeah. like that. i when I, I just take the biologist approach and say is that a two and a half year old deer with with a with a um 
110 class rack, you know, Harvest yeah. didn't find out and, and, you know, use the data, <laughs> use the data learn to your advantage it. and you learn from it. And, uh, uh, you know, I always say most of the time, uh, a, a three inch spike that weighs 90 pounds, you're not going to look at a deer that's going to, uh, unless you have changed, unless you dramatically change the, the nutrition overnight, you know, that, and, and that's the key. What, what are you doing with your habitat, the nutrition that's going to make a difference in, in your growth and development like that? If you're frustrated with your property, the forecast for the season doesn't look too great, or maybe you've just decided it's time to move on and invest in your own property, contact our friend Slade Priest at Southern States Realty, a part of the Realtree United Country Hunting Properties Network, the largest network of hunting and recreational real estate experts in America. Nobody in our area sells more, and Slade's not just a realtor. He's not just a real estate agent. He's a passionate outdoorsman that understands what the buyers and sellers needs. He knows how to put them together. He knows how to look at a piece of property and put the right people in the right place. Nobody sells more. You've seen him on outdoor TV. You see him on digital media. He spends his life in the outdoors. He's passionate about it, and it comes through in the results. If you're in the market, contact our friend, Slade Priest, the Hunting Land Man, huntinglandmanms.com. Check out all the new listings that he's posting on a regular basis, some exciting properties. Check them out, huntinglandmanms.com. Well, mm-hmm. that's a that's a perfect segue, <laughs> a perfect segue because one of the one of the main things that we wanted to talk with uh, Mr. Dave about is a lot of the the work that you did in your career around not only browse surveys but just general nutrition information, what the deer eat and how that changes in different habitats and and also throughout different times of the year. And I've got in front of me. Um, if any of you have ever um, heard Mr. Dave speak at any kind of uh, outdoor event, you've probably seen this, and I, I don't want to call it a book because it's really more of like an instruction manual or yeah, guide. I, I, I tried to make it like a workbook. Yeah, like a guide uh, to, workbook. To guide to help you um, learn the the top browse plants or just learn, you know, it, it has all the plants that we uh, know what deer are eating, although I'm, I'm sure there's m- more out there that that we have yet yeah. to be discovered. But it has the basics of what what constitutes what a deer would uh, feed on and, and what would provide the better nutrition. So it's called the checklist or checklist of Woody and herbaceous. Is am I saying that right? Herbaceous, herbaceous yeah, deer yeah, food yeah. plants in Louisiana. Yeah. And the one, the, so the first thing, and, and I'm, we're going to dive off into some information, but like one of the things that, that I, I've seen, I've had one of these books for a long time and I've looked through it, uh, several times. The th- first of all, it's, it really kind of, the first thing that strikes me is there's a lot of stuff out there that deer eat, <laughs> a whole lot yeah, of stuff there, it, out there. It's, it's easier to define what deer won't eat. It, I, I, uh, I mean, this it's really because yeah. when you look through this, if you're able to get your hands on it, um, you know, it's it. There's there's a lot of. Um, I, I mean, I don't know. I like that you say kind of yeah. how you laid it out. Yeah. There's, uh, it's kind of categorized, and there's there's pictures and and information about about 
lots of different types of plants and all this and and then I guess how to identify them and and different things about that. But I mean, it just goes on and on and on and on, <laughs> several hundred pages of of plants, you know. And I'm like, wow, there's a lot of stuff that deer eat. Yeah, it is. Uh, I was looking at uh, deer stomach contents today, and uh, here with well, a deer in this parish and <laughs> privet. Common. They ate privet. Oh, they ate privet. I wish they would really take a liking to privet. Well, they do. It, it, <laughs> it, it is one of your top end deer foods in this parish. Which well, that's good. Most people, most people hate privet. Foresters hate privet, but uh, it is one of your mainstay foods in this parish. Yellow jasmine, which is a vine that makes the yellow flowers, uh, is a mainstay because it's it's it has leaves and. And green leaves during the winter. Of course, honeysuckle, uh, your blackberry, your dewberries, those are plants that uh, even after a, a hard freeze, once it starts warming up, starts putting out new growth. So those are your constant. A lot of your uh, woody plants, your your oak seedlings and, and vines and things like that are, are dormant during the winter. So the only thing they would be eating is a woody stem, which you're not going to get much value, nutritional value out of that. Um, but there, and this is one way we, uh, evaluate habitat is we go in and look at what are the deer eating, what is available for the deer to eat, how much of the food there is available for the deer. And, um, based on a habitat survey, what we call a browse survey, we can give you an, a, a ballpark figure of, yeah, your deer herd is, is overpopulated. You Everything's being browsed. You got Chinese tallow tree being browsed. You know things like that that shouldn't be browsed. You're, there's heavy browse, browsing on your green briar uh, and things like that. And so that's one way we do evaluate a deer herd. And, and uh, one way we come up with a recommendation: well, you need to harvest uh, more deer if if your goal is to try to produce some quality to improve the the, the physical condition of your deer. Okay, so let me. So what I heard you say was, what I think I heard you say was, when you're con- when you're conducting a browse survey, when you get to the point where you're seeing heavy brows on plants that aren't at the top of a deer's favorite right, list and right. don't provide a lot of nutrition, right. you know that they're working really hard to find anything. When, when to you eat. start seeing non-preferred species being browsed. Uh, and you see the preferred species have been almost out. eliminated. Uh, you know, you go around and you look at your smilax, your greenbrier, and there's not a leaf on, on any of it. That tells you the browsing has been pretty heavy. Uh, the deer stomach I was looking at had climbing fern in it. Yeah. What's that? I don't know. Climbing fern, that green fern that climbs, okay. that you yeah. see everywhere. Uh-huh. Uh, and that's not a preferred browse. That's generally not a preferred, but because it's so common in the piney woods, you see a lot of it. I, I remember one one year at Pearl River, I was looking at deer stomachs, and the two things that stuck out was uh, <laughs> climbing fern and uh, 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 tupelo gum, the the swamp tupelo, the little black fruited. It was a poor mm-hmm. acre, it was a poor acorn crop, and they were just gobbling up the swamp tuple gum uh, seeds, and then they were eating the climbing fur because it's green. You know, it's a plant yeah. that stays green during <laughs> during That's... the winter, which is you know um, not the preferred. But uh... well, well, go ahead, Locke. You might you might uh, 
I don't know if you remember this or not, but Harmon Carson, he has a late season trick where oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. he'll pull Smilak Greenbrier out, out of the trees. It's just like Dave's saying, it's, it's, it's everywhere. In fact, in fact, once it gets to be, you know, after Christmas, January time, and you're in the woods and everything around you is dead and brown, that's the only thing that's green. He baits with and, it. And he pulls it down and baits with it. And I'm so glad that you just told me that it's not a preferred food source, yeah. Dave, because now I know that Harmon hunts a gar hole <laughs> continually. Well, uh, I, 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 the other day I was sitting in a stand and I was looking at yellow jasmine just growing everywhere at the top of these trees 20 feet up and my mind said you know if i went in there and saw those trees down not cut the vines but just <laughs> drop the tree down that's instant food right there you know yeah mm-hmm. uh, that's yeah. Well, that's that's true i want like so that that kind of that's an interesting yeah. question when you do when you're doing browse surveys yeah. is that something that people do when you go through and you look and you realize there's a lot of nutrition up high yeah, can you do that, hinge cutting and stuff hinge to? cutting uh some just some just some little selective cutting work in a site you know where you can enhance it uh when you see honeysuckle that's that's balled up uh five to six feet above the ground level that's an indicator that deer have eaten as much as they can and they'd have to stand up in order yeah. to eat more and, and so that's another indicator of of heavy browsing when you start seeing things like that uh, happening. Uh, the only time I've ever personally seen, been able to see with my own eyes clearly what it's like mm-hmm. in a stand of forest when there's way too many deer and they're starving to death, basically. Yeah. I had a friend, I'll remember this to the day, I uh, he pointed it out, and once he pointed it out, I was like, oh my gosh they had a high fence place and it it was not a very responsible group of dudes that had it right they had it slammed full of deer they were feeding them as much as they could but they were overpopulated right and it was all humongous humongous nothing really is virgin anymore but hardwood i mean there was no thicket to it it and you riding along the highway and at a certain point in the year it literally you could look through that high fence you know, of course, so you got probably a a bulldozer or two wide all right, the way around right, the fence, right, and then the woods yeah. start. And, you, you know, the ground was like dirt because they ate every stitch of grass right. all along oh, the yeah. fence. Oh, yeah. But you could look, and it literally looked like somebody went at about five or six feet high yeah. with some kind of herbicide or something right. and killed everything, yeah. and everything above it still had leaves. And that, that's, that's your browse line. It was, a, it, it, it was clear. It's very distinct. It yeah. looked... It, it, it looked yeah. The only thing I could compare it to was it like when the water goes down in the swamp and you can see where the water was, that's how these woods looked. And, and of course, right. when you drove down the road, you seen deer all up and down because they had way too many deer in there and they weren't right. killing enough of them. And it, really, it was irresponsibly done. But to, the, to, to somebody who did not realize what was going on, you would have thought that that was something that they did with herbicides to manage their forest or something. You would have thought uh, yeah. there's no way animals have eaten that because it was nothing. Yeah. And it was, it was kind of dis- – I, I thought when, once he pointed it out and realized, I was like, wow. Our, you know? our little track of land, uh, apparently there were some old home sites on it, and there's some um, uh, what I call domesticated – uh, privet, uh, your ligustrum, 
And it had grown, uh, trying to find the sunlight, it had grown like 20 or 30 feet up in the air. And one of the branches had fallen over last year. And deer were just eating it up. So I went ahead and hinged it a little bit more and gave them a little more access to it. And I was pointing out to my son Ruffin this past weekend, I said they just about have eaten everything they could except for the very top Mm -hmm. that's laying down, which is probably six feet or more in the air that they can't get to. Yeah. I said, I probably ought to just cut it off and let them, let them finish it off. But. The, the only thing that I've seen that's been that obvious to me, Locke, in the wild is, um, and I've only come across three or four of them on public land, is crabapple trees. Mm-hmm. Um, a crabapple tree, not the crabapples themselves, but the, but the, um, the leaves, like just like you said, it looks like they, uh, they poisoned. There's the one in my yard. Rock. Yeah, it looks like they poisoned the the bottom five feet of it, mm-hmm. and so, it's just yeah. barren, barren limbs. So yeah, there's that's a, interesting. There's a crabapple tree in my front. If you, if if um if you drive past my house, it's right up in the front, and it's I'm 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 trying to save it because it's leaning really really bad. And if you didn't know what it is, and I see it because I live there, the deer come from across the road and eat. They eat every crab apple and every leaf off of it. And if you don't know what you're looking at, you would think that because of the way it's leaning and all that, that everything on the bottom side of it is dying. Oh, yeah. But it's not. There's deer there almost every single night, and right. they, they do. Right. Yeah. Everything from about five or six foot down, yeah. like you said, Kyler, it's like somebody sprayed it. You know the underside of it. Yeah, yeah. Deer, deer will have an impact on your forest regeneration, and I've I've seen it on Sherbin, where uh, some of the fields were planted with oaks, and as they came up, deer would just hammer them, and you had a little looks like a little basketball oak, uh, you know, two feet off the ground. It's just uh, they just keep constantly browsing it and and uh, cutting back, and and they've had a lot of problems up in the northeast with the. Uh, forest regeneration because of overbrowsing too many deer in an area and they and exactly. it won't come up yeah. um Interesting. yeah i that yeah that's it's i don't think people even think about that really no, I, most, unless, unless they're invested yeah, in it yeah. somehow we, and and I, I, larry savage the uh the dmap study leader and then he became the turkey study leader good friend he likes to tell the story about uh years ago we went on a place in bienville parish and and uh uh, uh, the the gentleman there, I'm not going to mention his name, but he was just he he, he kind of didn't think too much of it, and then we started pointing it out, and man, his eyes just got open big time, and he realized, wow, we have no idea what what deer habitat is all about. You know, they yeah. they were looking at a green forest and just saying, well, there's food out there. No, this is what. This is what you look at. Yeah. And we actually pointed out some sites that had been herbicided where there was just very low um, browse availability of desirable plants. And then across the road where they haven't herbicided yet, it was just being eaten up because you had all a, a, a real good availability of the desirable browse plants. Hunting season is here. That fall weather's upon us. If you've had some success or you're expecting to and you need a taxidermist, contact our friend Brian Anders at the Taxidermy Shop. Located at 2582 Highway 48, Liberty, Mississippi. Conveniently located right between Centerville, Liberty, and Gloucester. Whether you're chasing bucks and ducks in the fall, big gobblers in the spring, or you land that trophy fish, give our friend Brian Anders a call at 601-248-6945. 
No job is too big or too small. Brian offers quality work in a timely manner, family-owned and operated. If you need a taxidermist, give our friend Brian Anders a call at the Taxidermy Shop, 601-248-6945. So I've had a firsthand um, education in what you just said because six years ago, so I'm – I live here in the same community with Mr. Dave out around the Clinton area in East Feliciana. And we moved out here in 2013. And um, a couple years after I moved here, um, just kind of one of those things, I, I moved here and a friend of mine said, hey, one of my buddies, he's actually a customer of mine from down in South Louisiana, um, he's got a play, he's got a, a hunting leash right there by you somewhere. And I, we got to talking. He's like, yeah, I think it's right down the road from you. And you know, it was one of those things. We're going to get together and meet up at the camp, and that went on and on. Well, then one one year, I get a, a phone call a couple of years into it, and he says, "Hey, man, um, so and so is uh, they're getting rid of their lease. They've cut all the timber off of it, and him and his brother don't want to go through the process of cleaning up after. You know, they clear cut it, and he'll sign it over to you if you want it. And and I and by this time, I had learned it is really right behind my house, right. and um. So I said, well, I'll pick it up because who knows, you know. Well, I, I picked it up, and, you know, I know this, and I'm sure a lot of people, um, and you know this, and I'm sure a lot of people listening, when they clear cut a place, the first spring, there's a lot of food in it. I mean, a lot of food in it. So I picked the place up, and a couple of friends of mine helped me pay for it, and we went and put cameras out, and there was a lot of deer. And we were like, well, this is not sure how we're going to hunt it because it's <laughs> wide open. There's a few little tree lines here and there, but there's a lot of deer. So, this is this is not an exaggeration. This is an absolute true story. That that first summer, things looked great. We would actually pull up out there in a side by side on one of the ridges in the evenings in the summer and sit and watch the deer browse in the cutover at a distance. And there was a lot of deer, and we had some nice up and coming looking bucks and all this stuff. So October comes, and we're starting to hunt a little bit. And we've got some feeders out, and we've got some cameras out on some oak trees and trails, and we're seeing lots of deer, and we're all excited. And I'm out there on like a Thursday or Friday afternoon with my tractor doing food plots, and a, literally a helicopter landed in the food plot with me. Like, it, he started circling, and I pulled off the side of the helicopter, landed in the food plot with me. And he said, hey, man, I'm fixing to start spraying. You probably want to get out of here. <laughs> and um, he said, uh, you know, you know, whatever, and I'm like, what are you talking, so he had the big booms, and so for the next couple of days, that helicopter sprayed that whole property, and I am not kidding you, within a week, we didn't get a trail cam picture of a deer for like a month after he left, and then it was two years before the population got back to where you even wanted to go hunt, and now it's been six years, The, the pine trees are six years old, so they're, I don't know, 18 to 20 feet tall right we still we've got some good mast around the uh, the uh the ditches and creeks and all that and last weekend a friend of mine sat on a food plot had nine does in a food plot and it went from but to your point the herbicide killed everything every bug everything and the deer left the turkeys left everything left well it's you know it's designed to eliminate the hardwood competition so that the pines can get on up and get growing and it, it it's pretty effective uh there's been a lot of debate over 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 the years since they started doing that uh, about that and i i, I noticed I've, I've read some some um uh, literature lately that they're talking about going back to the 
uh, just natural regeneration type. Uh, I hope they uh, do because I think it's just but, ba- well. You and I both have a kind of a vested interest in turkeys. Yeah, and I and I I feel very strongly yeah. that 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 along with more burning yeah. would be a tremendous help to the 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 turkey population exactly. issues. But you I know, think you it, know, uh, it helped the deer too, though, yeah. from what I've seen on my property. The D, the DMAP program was actually a boom for the turkey. restoration program because a club if we made a release in that area on a club they actually would take care of the birds whereas uh, back before it was leased you turn birds loose well anybody goes in there there, and try to kill them fair game so uh, the deep map program helped also worked hand in hand with the turkey restoration around the state well Kyler we're gonna we're gonna get a little bit of discussion here on one of the topics that we never really touch. And I, I warned Mr. Dave about this, uh, when we first got here, you know, we get the questions all the time about how do you hunt pine thickets? Because so many people, corn, corn, corn and food pots. Yeah. But right. I, I, I would like, I would, <laughs> since we have, since we have you here and, and, and you've got so much experience in this, I mean, we obviously all know that in heavy, heavily, uh, heavy pine forest you know you you do have to rely on having i know you've mentioned both in the turkey conversation but i've heard you mention it in deer too you got to keep up your right ways and make those sustainable you got to have food plots you got to have a feed program but outside of that at what stages of these pines can we start to see some of these preferred browse and what should people look for and 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 that kind of thing probably you know uh whenever you get that first thinning there's going to be a time once they start thinning there and, and they create some lanes in there. Uh, there's usually a lag time before they get back to herbiciding. So that provides opportunity um, uh, for the natural vegetation to start coming back and recovering uh, along that line. Uh, generally, in a pine plantation, you hunt. Uh, areas where your hardwood component meets the pine plantation those type of that's the salad bar that's that's the salad yeah uh you know uh, even even a a a a treated clear cut is good to some degree for a few years but then once those pines get on up and shade out then you start losing uh losing your ability to hunt it and and Openings and things like that, travel lanes. Those are those are, are ways that that you can get in there and hunt. So, it, is it is it safe to kind of so when we talk about how do you so I I I I want to kind of just say this in passing because I think it's super important when we're in a conversation with someone like yourself and the things that you've studied and that you're sharing with us. It's very common in the turkey world for people on a podcast or in a study group or a seminar or whatever, people understand that to become a better turkey hunter, if you're going to do it the right way, and I and I don't I don't shy away from saying that because I don't think that steel hunting turkeys over bait is the right way, even if it's legal in certain places. If, if you want to learn to hunt, hunt spring turkeys and become good at it, you have to learn to understand the turkey. Yeah. You have to. I think that some of that's lost in deer hunting right. because we find a pretty place where we know there's deer and we just wait them out. Yeah. That's what it is. But I think one of the answers, Kyler, to the question that we get all the time it is if you want to learn how to better hunt pines, you know, 
don't just go sit on that road where you can see a long way for hours and hours and hours and just hope you get lucky. Spend a little bit of time learning how deer actually use that kind of forest, what they're eating, what they shouldn't be eating, to like you said about the travel and at what stages learn deer habitat and learn deer behavior and then tailor your hunting to that because it's not going to be the same in a heavy plantation pine as it's going to be in um you know a, a hardwood managed forest or or an open country or anything like that to yeah, me that's uh, for deer hunters one thing i tell them uh look at the deer's stomach yeah it might be an indicator that there might be some oaks on your property that you're not aware of <laughs> that, that you're you not need, hunting that you need to find yeah you know get out and look at it you know if, if you find all of a sudden you find some cow oak acorns in a deer's stomach and you well there's no cow where where and you didn't so that gets you out, start looking, okay, where are these cows? Yeah. Where is it going to? Uh, things like that. So. Well, I think it's also interesting um, to note that I think it's undeniable that, and everybody would agree, that at lots of different stages of plantation pine, it provides cover, and there's going to be deer in it using right, right. it. I think, personally, and I'm interested in your your um, your thoughts about this, I've, I've heard a lot over the years um I don't think there's as much food in there as people. As some I've heard some people that well, well, then briars start growing up in the. I'm not saying the deer don't eat it, but it can't be really their primary nutrition. And people talk about well, that big buck, he's just gonna live in that pine thicket, and he ain't ever gonna come out. And I'm thinking there's not enough of the right nutrition in there. Am I wrong, or am I right, or somewhere in between? Yeah, generally a, a, a dominant pine plantation is not going to provide the, the So nutrition. he's got to leave. He, he's going he's gonna to be making uh, excursions out, trying to find uh, where there's some fields, some some uh, an oak right. ridge or something like that, a bottom, something like that. They're going to they're gonna be moving out. Uh, the You know, the pines, of course, you know, the thermal cover – uh, during the winter and, of course, during the summer with the coolness, uh, it provides that. But generally, a, a, a real intense pine plantation is not going to provide the nutrition. You've got to do something else. So uh, the logical deduction here is, for the guy who's asking us at Louisiana, well, how do I own a pine thicket? Yeah. If you got a picture of a big, nice buck, however big and nice is in your area, yeah. The logical deduction is he didn't get that healthy and that big right. by simply hiding from you in that pine thicket. And it's yeah. like your point, you look at the yeah. stomach. Maybe there's something in that stomach that exactly. leads you to realize, yeah. gives you a clue on where yeah. they're traveling yeah. to. And, and everybody has access to Google Map. You can beam it up and, and look at it and say, mm-hmm. okay, well, gosh, there's a new clear cut a quarter of a mile away that's maybe 50 acres i didn't realize that was there you know and, and so kyler i want you to tell mr dave what you said the other day about the guy that told you about the deer on the mountain where y'all were hunting in oklahoma and i want i want him to respond to that story because that was kind of amazing to me oh um yeah yeah so <clears throat> we went uh hunting in oklahoma at the beginning of november and uh oklahoma it's one of my first true trips like out I kind of called that the Midwest, uh, Illinois and all that. I feel like the Midwest actually starts in like Missouri West on, but um, for me personally, but that was my first time hunting any type of grasslands or plains or anything where it is. Um, there's a lot of ag, but it's mainly pasture land, a lot of cattle, a lot of horses, a lot of horses actually. Um, and we rented uh, a camping spot 
from a guy that's been living there for 40 years and his property butted up against some core of engineer land in a WMA on a few different sides. And, um, I, his name is Chris and I was sitting there talking to him and he said, yeah, you know, those deer come off a hill over there and they come on my property, eat dinner and go back. And I, I'm, I'm talking to him. He's standing at the window of my truck. And I said, hold on. I pulled up my phone and said, Chris, I don't see a hill. And I zoom out about a mile, no hill, two miles, no hill, three miles. He goes, there it is right there. And there's this, this gigantic miles long hill um, that is three miles west of his property uh, across a lot of open plains and grassland. And, um, and he said those deer traveling from the top of that hill or that like the, the rocks and boulders and, and, and cover that's on that hill and they come down and feed on my property and go back. And um, it was hard to believe because I've never – I've never hunted anywhere in my life where a deer would travel whew, half a mile in a day, much less two or three. And, um, and every single night when it would get dark, we would miss deer on the highway. Every single day that we hunted, we would see new deer, new bucks that weren't on camera before. We didn't see the last the previous four or five days. It was very obvious that there was a literal feeder system of populations of deer that were flowing through these woods which are, there weren't a lot of woods um, where we were hunting sorry there weren't a lot of woods in the area we were hunting the woods um, uh, primarily and he he was saying that they were coming from miles away and walking across those grasslands at night staying in the woods during the day and going back so that's Just, we're not going to see that here right well I remember uh, in West Feliciana, deer would come out of the hills and, and travel in, uh, down to Cat Island Swamp when they were farming it big time. And you had that movement of, of uh, feeding movement, you know, and it, it uh, some places, um, they may have covered as much as a mile coming. Uh, that much of a preferred food source. Going from, a Yeah. I, where you had uh, soybeans and sorghum, and, uh, and particularly sorghum, I remember looking at deer that had been eating the sorghum, and that's the only place they could get it. You know? So you think, you think with that being said, I mean, you could obviously come up with a scenario where there was a tremendous gap in nutritional value, but in the South down here, it's really it, even. You know, we're sitting right here in town in Clinton. It'd be really hard for me and you to go a half a mile in any direction and not find some pretty decent food source for a deer. Yeah, yeah you, 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 you would see that. But I know, I know there's been a lot of studies done, uh, telemetry studies with deer, that all of a sudden a deer takes goes on an excursion for yeah. 15 mm-hmm. miles and he's gone to, for, to a feed source and then eventually he comes back to his territory. It's just, so you think that in, in your experience with doing a lot of the food source and browsing kind of things, there really is that strong of a pull in some deer yeah, for a certain I, thing. Yeah, the deer, deer know what they like, know what they want, and they know where to find it. And, and that's why I say, you know, look at the, look at the deer's stomach, and that'll that'll tell you what. So do you, where he's going, where he's been. Um, did were you able to um, were you ever able to identify a trend, or or is this kind of in some ways an individualistic thing where some deer 
just really prefer this and that? Or, or is well, it's, it's mainly, I mean, the herd is related to your habitat, certain plants on this habitat. Uh, you know, you find this these plants, whereas like in the bottom land, you might find these plants, uh, things like that. It, it, you know, it, it's real interesting what you start looking at uh, deer stomachs. And, and I remember uh, at Fort Polk one year, uh, I was going through stomachs and, and I was using, I had a metal pan that I was emptying out the initial contents in and I started hearing this plinking. I said, what in the world is that? And I started looking around. It's bullets. Deer going on the firing range at Fort Polk, picking up the lead bullets because it has the, the minerals. What? And, and I, I had like three deer, three, three or four different deer that wow. had bullets. That's they they, they were getting stomach. mineral content off they, the lead. They were getting the the minerals, trace minerals from the lead, the, you know, the copper. It was really. Uh, we even found them uh, the phosphorus uh, flares that they shoot with using a little parachute. We even found that in their stomachs, you know. And I guess they're getting the phosphorus content. Wow, it, it's, it's really incredible. It's really interesting. What. Well, you know those, but the, to me, the the thing that stands out to me when I when you talk about those kind of crazy stories like yeah, that is yeah. we it's very commonplace in a group of deer hunters at camp or whatever to talk about how much deer can survive. Yeah. And oh, yeah. and, and we talk about that in, yeah. in so many conversations. Like you can drop a couple of deer off in a one acre block of timber in the middle of a of a neighborhood and they'll thrive. Yeah. But that 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 is just an example. I mean, what you're giving is a scientific researched example of yeah. how capable they are of surviving. Yeah. In in the piney woods, the uh, French mulberry, American beautyberry, whatever you want to call it, the little cluster of purple berries mm-hmm. on the shrub, that's a key plant to focus on. They eat on. that? Oh, yeah. Big I've time. often wondered if they – I figured they yeah. did, but that's, I didn't know how preferred it was. That's And so in the piney woods, if you have some thickets of that, that's an ideal setup right there yeah uh, uh huh to do that you know what they're talking about kyler uh yeah yeah i know, I know well, you, I know you, you don't hunt a lot of pine area so in, I, in, in this i don't i hunt negative i hunt zero pine pine trees <laughs> I, I haven't seen a pine needle in the woods in like six years deer we've even you know you even find pine needles in deer stomachs and i think my my theory is is when they laying up in the plantation they'll just reach down and Pick up a pine needle. To well, when they something. live in it, I mean, <laughs> yeah. there's so many ways they're picking up other stuff and getting it. But but in this parish, I don't know if you're familiar uh, with horse sugar, sweet leaf. I don't. It's know. a little green shrub that that it it maintains its 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 leaf green leaves during the winter, and in late winter, that's when deer start eating it. Right yeah. before those leaves fall out, and it starts growing its new set of leaves, and, and so that's the way some plants are. They're they're kind of. Uh, uh, limited to a certain times when, when they're available and, and they'll eat those things. Well, it's like, like what I said starting off this. When you go through this checklist book that you have here, the um, I'm going to send you one of these, Kyler. The amount of yeah. stuff in here, and there's things that I recognize in the picture part of it. I recognize those plants from just, the, and I, and, yeah. but it's not something I would have ever looked at. It's kind of one of those things where I'm aware of the fact, just from observing deer my whole right, life, right. that they'll kind of browse on and pick and grab a little bit of anything. They will. They, but 
But you know, some of the plants and that I've heard you talk about before, and that are in this book, that just the purple berries, for example, mm-hmm. I had no doubt in my mind they would pick yeah. at them. Yeah. But in my simple mind, most of the time when I find them, there's lots of them, so I'm thinking nothing's right. eating them. Yeah. You know. Well, when you, when you say purple berries, are you talking about what the raccoons will eat a lot of and poop out? <laughs> I don't know. Do they eat those? They probably would, but no. Uh, they're the berry that my parents, when I was a kid, always told me, don't eat them, they're poisonous. Yeah. Because they uh, look enticing. Yeah I, yeah. I thought those were the red. I, thought, I, I see those as like the red ones on holly trees, I thought. Yeah, holly, you don't. Um, they generally, uh, like yopon, uh, the red berries on yopon, they, they don't really fool with that. They'll eat the, the brows a little bit to some extent. Uh, the purple berry looks like it's about the same size and all as the red holly berry, but it's more of a purple color yeah, it's, and it's it grows an, on a different kind of bush. Purple. Um, gotcha. But, well, um, uh, in in that book, is there? Because uh, I have I haven't seen it. Is there uh, any coverage of um, like oak trees and hard mass stuff? Oh in there? yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, your question we, we, could we, be answered in yeah, this, Kyle. We cover, we cover that. Um, so ask away, because I know that well, you've got your opportunity. Ask your question. No, I want to do a whole podcast on oak trees. I don't want it to be a portion of a podcast. Like I, I, I really want to do like a, a once and for all definitive. This is what oak trees do. Like not not go on many tangents podcast. So I'm actually going to hold off on that question <laughs> because because that's what I think it deserves. Because we're so many bow hunters are so reliant on oak trees. I don't want it to be. Um, a, a sparsely covered topic, if that yeah, makes sense. I, got you. I, I think that needs to be its own episode. Um, and then, and then, um, uh, one of the one of the questions that's a little, getting off of uh, brows a little bit that I do have a question for you, Dave, is, um, or two questions. So, if, when I heard you introducing yourself at the beginning, you've been involved in the deer manager program with the state since the sixties. Is that correct? Uh, in the mid seventies, when I went to work in seventy six, but um. I'm I'm familiar with what has been done in the '60s and things like that. Okay, because uh, um, I know in the '60s we had, we talked with um, uh, Jonathan Bordelon a little bit about mm-hmm. this, but the deer reintroduction program, right? Um, which he he has uh, admitted that he doesn't think that any of those deer are still around. They didn't last very long, and none of their genetics are really around much either. Um, but the uh, I think what? Mr. Dave doesn't agree with that. <laughs> totally. Oh, great! I, I, I'm, I'm not Even sure. I, I'm not sure you understood him right because maybe, maybe. I'm not sure Jonathan would have said that. Uh, you lock him? Am I wrong? Is that? Is that kind of how I thought he said it. Well, we we have the audio. <laughs> I don't think that I don't think that he said definitively, but I but what I think he said or what he meant mostly by what he was saying was. Um, they didn't take hold and take over. I, I, you're probably talking about the Wisconsin deer. The Correct. Deer yeah. releases, yeah. Uh, those were limited. They did, uh, I mean, they, they maintained themselves. I'm not sure we've done any DNA, but you're not going to find, I don't think you're going to find any pure Wisconsin genetics yeah. anymore. I don't. Sure. Mo, most of the restocking in this state was done from deer from uh, red dirt um, the, on the national uh, forest land, um, which is an Area 2 type deer, an early November de- breeding. 
Madison Tinsaw deer, which is your late uh, December breeding, and then uh, deer from the mouth of the river, Pasalutra, uh, uh, and Delta Refuge, where they were easy to catch, those deer have the the December-January breeding. Those were the three places, uh, three sites there where most of the deer in the state came from. There was some deer from Texas and some other areas. There was some deer from some deer pens and places like that, and and uh, deer deer some from Wisconsin. I yeah. think, Kyler. I think we'd have to go. We have a podcast on it. It's right. out. Yeah. I think yeah. what I think. His comments had more to do with deer that were restocked and relocated from drastically different climates. Right, yeah. And the success of those specific relocations, not so much about the ones that were moved around. Nor- Northern deer generally don't do well in in the south. Mm-hmm. They're, they're not exposed to the blue tongue virus, the EHD virus. And, and that's one thing uh, in, in the 60s that kind of started ramping up people started noticing well why are these deer dying and eventually they said well it's, it's the blue tongue virus the ehd virus is causing yeah. uh, causing that so um I, I i got a um a question that i'd never considered and didn't even know that this could even be a topic of discussion but um somebody brought it to my attention that they believe that the deer that are on Avery Island and um, what's the other salt dome right next to Avery Island called? Um, uh, anyway, those the, those marsh deer, salt dome deer. He he asked, are, are those a different? They say strain or breed, but they, they look physically different from other deer in the state. Yeah. If if you look at Doctor Lowry's Mammals of Louisiana book, he he shows them as a different. Uh, Michaelhenii subspecies. Now, I, again, okay. I don't think any real DNA work has been done to determine uh, differences from a genetic standpoint, as such, and that and that would certainly need to be done. Um, they differ, you know, different marsh deer definitely uh, grow longer hooves to adapt to the to the soft marsh environment. They don't they don't mm-hmm. wear off. As such, like that, but um, I, I don't think there's ever been any real genetics from a DNA standpoint. There was a lot of, of, of physical measurements done of skulls and things like that. Uh, and, and generally, a marsh deer uh, is not going to be a, a big deer. You know, 150 pounds is, would be a heavyweight deer. Now, deer from Pasalutra were released in this parish. And I've hunted places where those deer were released and have killed two hundred thirty pound deer. So, <laughs> so you know, you take a deer out of an environment where their nutrition is not real good, and you put him in an environment where the true nutrition, particularly the the oak component, is really enhanced. They do much better. So, well, yeah. So the the common one of the common things you hear talking about all the different subspecies of turkeys are yeah. they're really not they're just evolved to their geography yeah is that is that kind of in your opinion from a uh, career a lot, of study is yeah, that deer too? a lot of that you know the wisconsin deer were bigger because they live in a much harsher and colder environment they have to uh 
it's it's really interesting uh, when you look at the jawbone of a northern deer and you look at the jawbone of a southern deer. It's like, gosh, you're looking at a jawbone of a cow. Yeah, totally. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, they're huge, uh, but they have to be huge to live in that environment. Uh, LSU years ago, with Dr. Mark Johnson, did some a lot of stuff with Missouri deer. And we did a, a deal on a place, it's actually in this parish where Missouri deer were turned loose. Um, I, I think those genetics got watered down real fast. I, I can remember looking at one jawbone when I was going through the harvest data. I said, wow, this this had to be a pure strain Missouri deer. But but um, both, all, those things get watered down in, in this environment. It, it's no advantage for northern deer to have that maintain that big body here in the south with our yeah. with our climate and yeah. things like that. Well, well I, I can say ahead, that. Bob. No, I was just gonna say. I mean, I've killed three or four deer from one area in the in the upper northern uh, west corner of Missouri, where Iowa and Nebraska and Kansas all come together, and you know, two of them were really. All of them, actually four of them, I mean, I've killed two in Missouri, one in northeast Kansas, and one in Nebraska specifically, all in about a 20-mile radius. Every one of those deer, um, two of them were what people would, you know, consider rack-wise really good trophy deer. The other two were both big, heavy horn, mature deer, but not tremendous racks. They were all in the 140s. Right. Uh, one of them was in the 150s. But all four of them? Are those four deer of all the deer I've killed stand out as body weight? I mean, foot size, chest size, and I've killed four and five year old deer in Kansas and Louisiana and Mississippi and Alabama and everywhere. And those four deer from that circle right there, they literally do look like a different animal. I mean, they're absolutely oh, yeah. tremendous. Right. So, yeah. What were you saying? Uh, Another question I had for you, Mr. Dave, is um, when, when was our deer uh, limit of essentially six deer a year? When was that set? Do you was that set when you came to work, or did you have any involvement in setting that? Uh that's a, that's a good question. I'm trying to think. Um. We've had a, we, we've had a six, how, well I, I have a book here that probably would tell us uh, we've had a six deer limit I think starting in the seventies prior to that uh, I don't think it was the full six deer limit um, as such but uh, that's something I'd have to go back and, and uh, okay uh, you, well, you, well, you're talking three, to an old seventy year old man so you know my, <laughs> I, I have limitations well so. <laughs> The, the reason why I ask is because we, we being, you know, having a company based around bow hunting and being kind of connected to bow hunters in the community, we get a lot of feedback that a lot of people think that the limit should be fewer deer. Yeah. And I've, I've even subscribed to that train of thought in the past until we talked to, um, was it Jonathan Borlaw or was it Brett Collier? It was, it was Jonathan. I think it was the last one with Jonathan where we, we talked was, about yeah. this, not Brett. He, he said, really interesting statistics that um uh that less than if i'm not mistaken less than 10 percent of all licensed hunters kill more than three deer and only one percent of all licensed hunter kill all six that, that, yeah. so That's... we do not have 
a bunch of, you know, mountain men, <laughs> deer, deer assassins walking around the woods like we all pretend to be. Yeah. I've limited out a few times and, and I, I love to give deer away and we eat it on all year long, blah, blah, blah. But um, I, I was very happy to hear that our limit, like our numbers per person are nowhere near being filled every year. Yeah, you look, um, you look at the annual harvest survey, half the deer hunters don't kill a deer. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and, and it's and, it, and you know, and then you got maybe forty um, percent that might kill between one and three deer, and then yeah, and yeah. then it's, it's a small percentage that actually kill reach up to the limit. So the lim- the limit of six is is you know it's not it's not a limiting factor of our deer herd and. It, in this parish, we've been we've been given a, a three deer limit, which I don't like because I, I I see more I see a lot every year. I live ten miles from Clinton, and every year, you know, over that ten mile stretch, there's there's uh, half a dozen or more deer run over every year, and that's to me that's a wasted resource. Well, aren't we aren't we um, the limit here in this part? Was a f- because of River Area Six and also Baton Rouge 2016. Weren't we affected by those? Well, it, it's a combination of, of uh, a lot of it was uh, going back to Katrina when you had such a surge of people coming up to the North Shore into the Florida parishes. You had a lot of development, things like that, hurricanes and storms that have damaged the habitat. But um, and and that is a problem, an issue in some places. But I think now I, I, I'm I'm hoping wildlife will take a close look because um, we've got more deer, I think, than than um, uh, we have more today than we yeah. did when I moved here in 2013. Right, I can yeah. say that for sure. Yeah, yeah, we have less turkeys than more deer. <laughs> right, exactly. That's, that's exactly right. So I, I think we we should either. Um, Go back to the six deer limit in area four, or perhaps maybe be put into area six, which has the same deer season, something like that. But mm-hmm. I, I think if we were put back into area six, you'd see St. Helena and people in Tangible uh, uh parishes wanting to get in on that too, uh, because uh, I think um, the deer numbers are, are kind of getting back to where where they should be yeah well you mentioned the hurricanes and the storms and i i want to make sure if even if if one of the last things we touch on here that's a big thing right now because ida did a lot of damage and you mentioned to me earlier when we were getting ready to start recording how some of the plants in your own yard uh, uh, responded to that change so you know based off of your experience um studying the plants and the and the browse and the deer uh and how they respond to all that so you know first of all you got the loss of like i have a lot of big big trees that fell and that's going to open up the canopy and right so between that and some of like the way you saw some of the plants uh react to that what do you what you what do you feel like is is happening now and what do you think is going to be the year uh year and a half two year uh effects for people well, that were affected by the storm you're going to see um i think you're going to see the deer numbers increase in response to the cover and the food initially things like that they may be hurting a little bit for uh uh some loss of mass crop things like that but i think you're going to see uh deer respond in a positive manner and and numbers 
uh, generally increase. Uh, in some areas like Katrina, Pearl River was almost impossible to hunt after Katrina yeah. in 2005. In fact, I heard that it, it was it, it was very noticeably the hunters. We used to have a good clientele of hunters out of New Orleans. And after the first couple of years, they just abandoned it. it was was just, it because of access, all access, the damage? Yeah, it, it's just, you know. You Down just, trees. Yeah, you just, it was just. a. a I can see that in my it, little it, purview. It, it was it's very like difficult to, to get into the woods, you know, and most people, you know, hunt the, tra- you know, stay on the trails and, and don't venture out into the woods. And, and uh, you know, a management area to have success, you have to have a good hunter turnout. You have to have good weather. Uh, and if people can't access into the area, they just, you know, well, we'll go somewhere else and, and things like that. So, Well, a byproduct of that I've heard um, was the hog situation got out of control because of the abandonment. Uh, well, the thick cover – and then there was just nobody shooting, shooting yeah. them anymore. And that's going to be a problem here. Uh, anytime you create cover, uh, the hogs are going to do well. Do you think the <clears throat> increase of pine forest is, is a factor in the hog situation? Do you think we're create uh, in predator and hog reproduction, the amount of land that's being clear-cut and reforested with thick pine thicket, do you think that it's part of the hog and the predator increase? Because you're providing so much more cover for them. Well, uh, with the predators, uh, you know nobody's trapping anymore. That to yeah, me, I that, think that's the biggest factor. That, yeah. That's one of the big factors with that. Nobody, uh, and I don't see it ever coming back. Really, I, I may be wrong. Why would they? There's yeah. no value. Yeah, I mean, it, it's the hogs. Just uh, uh, <laughs> they're a survivor no they, matter what they, you do. Uh, but that is a tough, smart animal, and and I don't know how you can. Uh, well, I'll say, I say, I asked you that question for this reason. I grew up hunting in large swamp hardwood with some select cutting have been done, and there were a lot of hogs. Yeah. Um, but we killed hogs year-round, and even when they got wise and went mostly nocturnal, we still killed hogs. Right. Because the land just, for the hog to eat, for it to root... You know, even if they went mostly nocturnal, like I said, early and late in the we still killed hogs. Now, I'm hunting 400 acres in East Feliciana Parish. 300 of it is six, seven-year-old pine thicket, and there's a lot of hogs, and I can't kill them. Right. Like, yeah. they're in them pines, and I know they're in those yeah. pines. Yeah. I can stop on my side-by-side and just about smell the walla out in the pines, yeah. and I can't kill them. Yeah. You know, because they're not going to come in that food plot in the daylight, period. Yeah. And they can... In my opinion, a hog's a hog and a crow are the two smartest things out there in East Feliciana Parish, yeah. for my money. And 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 so that's why I kind of ask that because I I look at my property all the time and I think I'm not you know I mean other than trapping and in some way of catching them at night they stay in these pines. Yeah, it, it's it's a it's a problem, uh, and and these storms have made more cover for them. Pigs, you just uh, you've got to trap them, you got to hunt them, whatever you can do, and you got to do it year round. Yeah, you can't just slack off. It, it's a constant, and it gets old after a while. People get tired. <laughs> well, it, it it's, <laughs> I, I, it's I find it's hilarious because I have friends 
Um, and I think probably all of us have this. We have friends that don't live in a hog area. Yeah. And like, oh, I want to shoot a hog. I want to yeah. go out. And, I, and I'm like, oh, yeah, you yeah. do once or twice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's not it's as good. Like, it's, yeah, it's kind of like when you get your first Robin Hood, when you first start shooting your bow. You're like, man, this is awesome. And then everyone after that is just expensive, expensive. and annoying. <laughs> it yeah. yeah. It's like this cool thing to do once, you know. Yeah. Um, I, I, it's a, I've had so many people from – people that i've met and that i know from hunting out of state in different places you know anybody that sells hog hunts no but i know some people that would love for you to come yeah, down here and shoot as many as you want for yeah. free yeah. <laughs> probably feed well, you dinner dave, while you're down here dave I, i've got a, 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 another question that I, I want this is my last question i've been wanting to ask you this for a long time i get asked this a lot i think it's on a lot of people's minds i'm interested in your opinion of it um do you think that Louisiana could benefit from ever having any sort of antler restriction set on our population of bucks? Um, no. I, the problem I see is we have the habitat, the landscape. It's just not such that it's going to – you're going to really benefit from from that. Uh we tried that years ago in three parishes, um, and the landscape, some people were managing their timber, some people weren't managing their timber. We just didn't see it doing what, what people thought it would do. And uh, I, I think the best approach is for the individual landowner, hunting club, to, to do that on their own and, and, if they, and, and try to form a co-op between – uh, adjacent landowners and get everybody on the same page doing it that way. Um, mm. I, I just I just don't see it with it, with the different habitats that we have uh, in this state that it it would be bit really beneficial because uh, a dominant piney woods is not going to grow the same deer that a bottomland uh, track that has agriculture going to do it. So sure. it, it's it's just too too hard. Not to a do. very good top down it, exactly, solution. Exactly. Well, I, uh, kind of on the periphery of that question, I think uh, I, I think we would probably all agree that this era of, of deer hunting is no longer um, necessary for survival. It's it's ninety nine point nine percent recreation, and I'm yeah. man enough to come out and just a bit like I deer hunt for fun. I love the challenge. I think a deer is a formidable opponent. And I like to shoot them under 20 yards, and that's why I do it. And then the byproduct is that I get meat that I think is delicious that I can't buy in a store. <laughs> but it's not the other way around. It's yeah. not meat first, enjoyment second. Yeah. Um, and so I think, uh, like I mentioned earlier about progression and personal betterment and things like that, um, as a hunter, I, I, I'm curious um, as to – Possibly, what's going to happen with the brown and down generation? And essentially, as we move further in toward, into the um, recreational era of hunting, which we're well within now, how much longer is that, oh, I shot a spike, it was the first thing that came out, going to last? And starting to, even though, like you said, I understand what you're saying about deer, like a pine ticket deer is never going to be a booner, or most likely won't be. But 
maybe he could be a two and a two year old. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, I, th- I think I think you're seeing that already. I think I think the age class structure yeah. ha- has increased dramatically in this state. People are are no longer shooting those year and a half olds right off the bat, and they're waiting. Uh, you you touched on something. Uh, I I think this the next generation, you guys that are coming up, us baby boomers who were who grew up in the '60s hunting, and then in the '70s, '80s, and '90s, uh, we're we're phasing out. And I think mm-hmm. that's one thing you're seeing is that uh, the baby boomers go out deer hunting and they're just content with looking at deer. And it's a different they're, culture. They're not dropping them like they were. You know, yeah. as you said, brown is down there. They're, they're and and the next generation coming up, they don't have that that mindset that uh, to kill a deer. Uh, you know, there's so many things now that kids can do. Yeah. And and you know, well, okay, I can go deer hunting, but I can also do this, this, and this, and this. And uh, I I think yeah. I think down the road, you, you know, ten, twenty, thirty. I don't know where deer hunting will be, but I think there's going to be plenty of deer and. People might be thinking of them more as vermin than. Well, I wonder. You know, I, I, I was gonna say so in in kind of in wrapping up and and, and but responding to that last thing there, I, I was gonna say that from my from my perspective, um, you know, being from Mississippi and spending a lot of my life there, and I still hunt there a lot. Right. Um, the the antler restriction changes started happening there, and I agree with you as a top down solution. I don't think that it has a, a huge benefit, but what it has done is changed the age structure, mm-hmm. and I think QDMA Bingo. and hunting yeah. culture, right. in in collaboration with state regulation, yeah. has changed the age structure. I think when you go up to Kansas and and Iowa specifically with lotteries and and even the other states with lower limits what you see there and the reason that not just because of the 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 deer itself but the the age structure is better the deer get older there's more older bucks so there's more bigger bucks um i think that's but but what you just so you kind of touched on what i was going to say i think that's the biggest benefit of antler restriction whether it's self-imposed which i agree is probably the more effective method is self-imposed and co-op um but what i didn't expect uh to think of because you 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 did when you said it so i can remember and 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 to this day even really still um and you probably did too in your generation i can my grandfather and um and and in his buddies you know when i used to go hunt when they were they would always tell me stories and this was even back before it's not nearly as good as it is now Boy, you don't know how good you had it. Back when I, we were just lucky to see a deer. Mm-hmm. Well, that's where mm-hmm. it came from for them. Was right. you, it, you'd be crazy to pass up any you legal have to opportunity shoot the deer yeah. for yeah. anybody to believe that you saw it. Right. right. So they, you know, <laughs> they would hunt for um, meat and and for pleasure. But they, you know, the, the the increase of the hunting culture and the increase of the management of deer, I think. Part of it is obviously our generation, our kids, and I have kids and you have grandkids the age of my kids, and and we all can see firsthand. Um, but I I think generally speaking, there's no urgency. Yeah, that's right. You know, from Kyler's perspective, that's a, that's like from good, what that's you, a good word, yeah, yeah, from mm-hmm. what like what you said, Kyler, yeah. it it's not a necessity for anyone, and it's not, um, and it's important to say that. Yeah, People, it, I, like it's it, that argument. If I hunt for food, is that's been gone. 
Yeah, well, I think I think there's a there's a culture developed around cleaner eating and all that where people are telling themselves that this is an outlet for me to live this lifestyle. Right. But nevertheless, if their children got hungry, they could always go to the store and feed them. They don't have to hunt to sure. feed their family. I think between that and I and I'll give you a, a, an example, a personal example. My younger son Trig doesn't hunt. Um, he's been on hunts as a little one when we shot deer and turkeys and he loves to fish and go outdoors but he's not much on sitting there flip loves to hunt right you know you see the videos i post all the time he hunts it all the time there's a part of me that as a dad and i watch him all the time this plays into this comment i recognize in the fact trig knows if he ever decided he could just go kill a deer Mm mm-hmm he didn't come up in a generation where it was like, well, if you really want to kill a deer, this is something I got to get into. I got to work right, at. Right. He don't have to work at it. He yeah, knows good and yeah. well that he doesn't have. And I think that that very small little example could be forecasted or, or laid out across our whole culture. To your point, um, people, there's no urgency to. Yeah, yeah. They're just there, and if you want to, you want to go. It's always going to be available. And it didn't used to be that way. It used right. to be a resource that you really. You didn't have the luxury of trying to worry about the age structure. Yeah. If you wanted to enjoy this sport and kill a deer, you better shoot the the first deer you got a legal opportunity yeah, to yeah, shoot. Yeah. yeah. You know. Yeah, we're that, we're we're, we're seeing a generation of passing away the baby boomers that is kind of like what Leopold said about the green eye and the wolf that that he killed and seeing it kind of the glow kind of go away. I see that in older people who hunted all their life and they reach that point and it becomes really sad. They say, well, I just can't do it anymore and I don't want to be a burden to anybody. And that yeah. glow kind of goes out and that's sad, you know, because they yeah. had that desire so for, for all their life to, to, to hunt. I can understand it because uh, even, I mean, I'm not at that point and, and I don't have, I still have a, a passion and desire for it, but, I say it on this podcast a lot. My passion and desire for hunting these days has more to do with the process than hunting itself. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. it, I do talk a lot about the way I hunt. I'm a very, you know, when I go on a hunting trip and I got five days to hunt, I hunt. But right, right. around here, I only hunt on certain weathers. I'm very particular. I don't just, I don't, I, I, I despise the can't kill them on the couch mantra. I don't, <laughs> but some of that has to do with the urgency thing. I don't, yeah, yeah. you know, and I think that, um, Another thing that I that I'll say to this, and and then we 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 got to start wrapping up, but I see it in my dad, and uh, it's interesting that he came up in a generation where there was plenty of deer hunting, and they you know, but it wasn't like it is now. He right. had to hunt. Him and my 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 grandfather, they had to hunt really hard, and they did, and they killed deer, but they had to hunt hard to do it. And any any legal antlered buck was something to sure. be. Uh, exactly. take note of and, and that was a special opportunity nowadays m- my dad and I could kill a legal antler buck just about every weekend if we wanted to right but I see in the hunting stories and the things we do I can see that culture and that generation in him where even now you know he's oh we need I'm like well, you don't I see it differently and I realize but I can still see it coming out in him where he kind of gets in a hurry Mm-hmm. He kind of feels the pressure of, well, we need to, you know, take that shot now. I'm like, just, you don't have to. Like, it's just a different, you can see the roots. Yeah. And I don't feel that way because I, it, it, I just, I wasn't, 
I didn't have to work as hard as he did when he was a teenager. And um, I guess I don't know if I'm doing a great job of explaining it, but even in, like I said, in the way that he hunts, and sometimes I can still see how hard they had to work for it back then. And I know I, I, I'm glad to have the, the wherewithal to realize and to know that I didn't have to experience that and I can see it. And, um, you know, it is, it, it highlights what you said when you see that, but then you see that el- as, as they get, as that generation gets more elderly and you start seeing that fire go out, it's even more sad, Yeah, you know? So Kyler, do you have any other questions before we, uh, before we start to wrap up? Anything else you want to touch on? Nope, I got all my questions except for oak tree discussion out. I would love to have you on and talk more about that. <laughs> well, I'll be, I'll be glad to. I like. I, I just Kyler you know. has this. He has a real desire to do a deep dive into oak trees, and I do think it's a great topic. I just, I just uh, about three years ago, I went to a place here in Clinton, and me and one of the grandsons picked up two five-gallon buckets of cow oak acorns, and then I got on the tractor and dug a trench and. I grew, I think every one of them sprouted, and so I'm I'm starting me a cow oak plantation, which is going to be the future for these grandsons. <laughs> well, that's definitely. Well, th- th- do, you know, do you know that show, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia? You ever I've never watched wa- I know what it is, but I've never watched it. Well, you don't need to watch the show. I know you've seen the meme. There's a character yeah. named Charlie, and he's got this, <laughs> he's got this um, uh, uh, ch- chalkboard, with pictures and corkboard, and he's got lines drawn between pictures. He's smoking a cigarette. He looks like he's been up for eighteen days, and and, and uh, oh and yeah, he's, yeah, all yeah. he's all wigged out. And he's trying to explain like this theory. That's how I feel about trying to understand all oh. oak trees <laughs> <laughs> and what's how they're different from each other. Yeah, yeah, because because like I, I mean, I literally I've gotten to the point now where I use hunt stands a lot, um, and when I find dropping oak tree i will mark it and i'll put the date and when it was dropping and what time and then i hope that i when i go into another set of woods that and i find the same type of tree i hope it's on the same so schedule some consistency <laughs> yeah. very seldom ever is you know yeah. um but that's the topic i'd really like to go yeah. into and, and we've been asked about it a lot so well, maybe we can uh, do no, that I don't one have day on the road what, yeah. is, there any, is there anything else that you think would be a value that we can add to the conversation, Mr. Dave? Uh, no, I mean, nutrition is the key to deer management, and um, the better job you can do with that in whatever way you can manage, um, you need to do it. If, if you yeah. I hope that people, especially people that have a say in, in, in management on property, will – Cause I hear it. I mean, you're you're you are saying it, but you're you're just saying and 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 um, reiterating or whatever the word I'm looking for. That that information is out there from a lot of people, oh, yeah. colleagues right. from your profession. Right. Getting rid of this idea of killing your way into what you want out of a deer herd, you're not going to do it. Yeah, it's not going to happen. And and paying more attention to your property through the studies that you spent a whole career putting out there for people to to uh to to consume and 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 dive into and learn about i I think that to me what i would say to all these people who contact louisiana bowhunter all the time and ask well how do i do this well how do i do that how do i you know and it's all about how do i hunt 
you know, what do I do about what, learn the deer a little bit more? Right. Instead of just making it a, t- a time game of every day I'm off work, I'm going to go sit there. And if I sit there long enough, I'm eventually going to see him. Well, the only way you're going to kill turkeys consistently is to learn about turkeys and understand them because they're a complicated creature that don't even understand what he's doing half the time. And I think that when it comes to these kind of things, there's so much information out there. If you learn a little bit more about the deer, these things make logical sense. Like, if you paid attention to the science that guys like yourself have spent their whole careers putting out there, anybody with half a brain could sit there and realize that the culling and the the harvesting into into deer herd management was a flawed, stupid idea to begin with, you know? And yeah. so hopefully people will start paying as much attention to that, that habitat management as they do to how many tree stands they get up and right. all those kind of things. So. Exactly. But uh, it's been an awesome conversation. We thank you very much. And Kyle, I'm, being here. I'm gonna send yeah, you. Thank one, you so much, Dave. I'm okay. gonna send you one of these books uh, that I've had. Uh, that uh, he's got an extra here. I'm gonna send to you. And uh, just remind you guys, if you've purchased any Scree gear, um, you you can use the LABH code for twenty percent off of your first purchase of any regular price items. Some of the holiday sales are wrapping up, but there's always some sales going on. Check them out, and if you've purchased any gear. Send me a review, look me up, Lock Wheeler, L-O-C-K-E, W-H-E-E-L-E-R, or just send it to Louisiana Bowhunter. Send us a review, your name, your location, and what gear you've bought, positive, negative, or otherwise. Send it to us. We're going to draw one random um, winner from all of those reviews and give them a Louisiana Bowhunter gear package for Christmas. So um, outside of that, check us out, LouisianaBowhunter.com. Check out some of the gear, great stocking, stocking stuffers, Christmas items. And uh, all of that, and we apologize for kind of the gap. Thanksgiving got away from us, and we were busy, but I hope you all enjoyed that with your families, and we didn't get a podcast out last week, but I think this is going to be a fantastic one to make up for the gap, and we'll be back to talk to you next week. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Louisiana Bowhunter Podcast. If you have anybody you'd like to hear on the show, reach out to us at info at louisianabowhunter.com. And if you want to help support Louisiana Bowhunter, go by your local archery shop and pick up some merchandise. If you don't have any at your local shop, let us know and we'll reach out to them. Or pick up your gear at louisianabowhunter.com and we'll ship it out to you same day. See you next week.